Uh, good evening. Uh, my name's David Spurgel. I'm uh, chair of the Department of Astrophysics and uh, chair of the Committee on Public Lectures. I'd like to welcome you to uh, uh, this year's uh, Lewis Clark uh, Vinuxum Lecture. Uh, the Vinuxum Lectures were founded in 1912 with a bequest of 25,000 from Lewis Clark Vinuxum of the class of 1879. And uh, previous lectures have included uh, Edwin Hubble on the exploration of space, uh, Thomas Mann on Goethe's Faust, uh, Jane Conan, uh, James B. Conant on uh, the mobilization of American scientists for the war, Ralph Ellison on the novel In America, Carl Sagan on extraterrestrial life. Uh, recent lectures have included uh, Neil Tyson last year, Frank Wilczek, and Nora Volto. Um, it's a pleasure uh, uh, to uh, 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 in this series, what we do is we introduce the introducer. <laughs> so I'll introduce Brian Kernigan from Computer Science, who will introduce today's lecture. <laughs> Thanks, Dave, and I promise I'm the last of the introducers before we get to the main event. Um, our speaker tonight, uh, Dan Russell, got his PhD at the University of Rochester. Uh, in computer science where he specialized in artificial intelligence. Somewhere along the way, he decided that human intelligence was a lot more interesting than artificial intelligence, and he's uh, spent all of his time subsequently studying that. At a, a variety of interesting and very influential places, he spent at least a decade at Xerox Park, the famed Palo Alto Research Center, which contributed so many great things to computing. Um, he was at Apple for five or six years uh, in a variety of ways dinner discussion indicates that he and Steve Jobs did not always see eye to eye on things, which is kind of intriguing. Um, and he spent another five years at IBM Almaden Research Labs in San Jose. Um, in all of those places, he was doing his own research and also managing research groups of varying sizes uh, that were studying things like user interface, visualization of data, and just generally, how do you understand and manage and make accessible very, very large collections of data. And I think it's that interest in these huge collections of data that probably led him to his current job at Google, where he went in 2005, because Google probably, by definition, has more data than anybody else at this point. Um, his job title, well, you can read it for yourself, except it's a little small, so let me say it for you. He is the Uber Tech Lead for Search Quality and User Happiness. This is a <laughs> title that doesn't quite fit comfortably on a standardized business card, but perhaps gives you an idea of the eclectic nature of his job. Um, he writes a really interesting blog, which I recommend, uh, called Search Research, which is probably pronounced slightly differently than that. Very, very interesting, worth visiting. Um, he is also the author of a very fun website, relatively recent, called A Google A Day, which basically sets interesting search questions for people to explore, of course, using Google and perhaps other search engines if they're so motivated. Um, so he said uh, in something that I read that he is interested in teaching and learning and running and music. Uh, Dan gave a guest lecture in my class this morning, and I can tell you that he's a dynamite teacher that worked extremely well. Um, I played some music in honor of his arrival, so we've done that part. Um, I'm sure that he will learn from you if you ask good questions after his talk, and then maybe when he's done, he can go for a run. Uh, so anyway, uh, please join me in welcoming our speaker of the evening, Dan Russell. Thank you, Brian. 
So thank you very much for having me tonight. Uh, I want to start with a really interesting framing question. And I'm going to frame this whole talk as kind of a quest. And the quest is basically a question to answer this question. Are you literate? And I mean that for you. Are you literate? So naturally, being a research scientist, you know what they do. They go around and do studies on these things. So I walked up and down the halls at, at work in Mountain View, and I asked a bunch of people, are you literate? And they would say things like, what do you take me for, an illiterate troglodyte? And I thought, what a great self-answering question. <laughs> and, and so I started thinking about what would it mean for this person to say to me a phrase like that, knowing that I know what troglodyte is, right, and I would understand what they mean in that, in that sort of context. And so if you go off and look at the dictionary of what literacy means. It means just basically a very technical definition. What does it mean to read and to write? That's deeply unsatisfying. Because if I talk to you and I say, are you a literate person? All this other stuff comes up, right? It's sort of a hallmark of, of being an educated person. It's not just the ability to read and write in some symbol encoding system. And so I did the obvious thing being at Google. I looked at a bunch of search queries. So I wrote a little job, and in about uh, three minutes, I, I looked at a, roughly a couple million queries for the most popular word that prefixes literate or literacy in the Google search stream from last week. And I found things like ocean literacy, kitchen literacy, legal literacy, information literacy, health literacy, statistical, et cetera, et cetera. Etc. So what does literacy mean? So what I'm trying to figure out really is whence this idea comes from. And if you look in the Google Ngrams corpus, which is our giant collection of all the words in all the books, 120 million books we scanned uh, since roughly 1800, you can see that the words literacy and literate only start really appearing in the literature about 1910. So it's kind of idea that's been around for a long time, but people only really got worried about it in the past century. Okay? Now, that's sort of a weird concept. Why should that be so? So I walked down the hall and I asked another friend of mine. And he said, that. Anybody read Arabic? Okay. Are you, you're the only exception here, are the rest of us illiterate? Well, wait a second. My other friend said this, right? You see my point, right? I actually know what those mean because I got them from my literate friends, which implies, of course, that I'm illiterate. Well, not really. What it means is I'm illiterate with respect to my social group for that coding system. Those languages are ways of writing stuff down in a particular symbol system, with a particular vernacular, a particular set of words, a particular set of social conventions and knowledge that go along with that. Anybody read that? The computer scientists in this group understand what that is. That's actually a funny notation for a TCP IP code. Okay? How about this? Does anybody read that anymore? Can you even identify the orthography? 
Brian probably can. It's an APL piece of code for the game of life. It actually is a little computer game that will run on your desktop or on your laptop and actually do stuff for you. Question, are you illiterate? Can you read and write in these symbol systems? Well, I wrote that one. I can't write that one anymore. Once upon a time, a couple decades ago, I actually could read that. No mas. It's long gone, right? And I never could do those two. So here's an interesting question. What does it mean to be literate? How about topic literacy? Can you name, for example, the top wine producers in the Los Carneros region of California? Some of you probably can, right? Can you name the three main kinds of Natsuki or the mother of Ishmael? Those are all different kinds of regions of literacy. So I'm still trying to figure out what does it mean to be literate? There's a kind of literacy that involves reading and writing code or ways of expressing complex behavioral ideas. So there's a well-known problem in computer science called the eight queens problem, where you try to put queens on a chessboard, and here's one such arrangement. And the problem is to find all possible arrangements of queens on the chessboard such that they don't attack each other. Right? Now, the less chess literate of you might have thought there's no solution, but there's actually you know, a bunch, especially when you multiply this. So you can write something like this. This is a piece of Python code. One page literally expressing the idea of how to solve this problem. Right? So question, are you literate? Can you read and write this? Musicians are a funny bunch because they can be extremely talented. A pianist can sit down, I can sit down and play this. And yet they may not be able to write it. You all know talented jazz musicians who can play marvelous pieces of music. They can improvise. They can make whole worlds appear out of the piano. And they can't write a note. Are they illiterate? So I was thinking about this, and I was trying to think about what it means to be illiterate. And I came to this sort of um, set of understanding, which is it's to be able to read and write in a symbol system, Chinese, Arabic, regular expressions, APL, and it's operationally defined with respect to your cultural group. So we're all here at Princeton, so we're in some sense extended Princetonians. So you're literate or illiterate with respect to this set of people here, with respect to the people that matter in your world. And it has assumed an implicit body of knowledge. So a computer scientist looking at that piece of Python code, they get it. They're literate in that language, in that social system of computer scientists. So for me, I'm trying to grapple with this idea of literacy as knowing enough about a domain to be able to read, write, answer questions, and function critically in that domain of interest. So here's a question. Was Socrates illiterate? You know that Socrates because it's carved out of white marble. You know he's a famous philosopher, and you know that's how you know that, right? But, but wait, wait. How did you know that white marble busts imply learned philosophers? That's part of the body of knowledge you have by being extended Princetonians, right? But Socrates neither read nor wrote. And this guy, Plato, actually wrote down what Socrates was talking about, or was at least alleged to have said that, or at least alleged to have done that. 
Now, what you have to realize is that there's this very interesting critique about writing. Remember, reading and writing in a symbol system is part of what it means to be literate. So what Plato wrote about writing is basically this. He's talking about the technology of writing and saying the specifics about writing, which you have discovered, is not, it is not an aid to memory, but to reminiscence. And you have given your disciplines not truth, your disciples not truth, but only the semblance of truth. They will be hearers of many things and will have learned nothing. They will appear to be omniscient and generally know nothing. He's saying, basically, writing is a bad idea. Right? He's calling into question what it means to be literate because when you write something down, then that idea can't defend itself. It's text on a static page. It no longer has any semblance of life. And so once these things are written down, they can be tumbled about anywhere among those who may or may not understand them. And what's more, if you go off and read my text, you may have no clue what this means. You don't share my social understanding about this. And so this is a critique of the technology of writing from when? 370 BC. Okay. So what this means to me is that technology is intimately woven into this idea of literacy. Just as writing is a technology of capturing ideas and putting it onto some static permanent form. As we develop new tools and technologies, we invent them and then they change us. They change what we think of as literate. So what we're really about, what I'm trying to, trying to understand is what does it mean when we have these different technologies in use? We don't think of symbol systems as technology, but they incredibly are. We have tools to create them, like the chiseled pen, or the stone chisel, or the keyboard, or the little pokey thing you have in your hand. We have these technologies that constrain, affect, allow, and empower us to be literate. So let me give you another quote by our friend uh, Boswell, writing him in the life of Johnson. You've probably heard this. Knowledge is of two kinds. We can know subject ourselves, or we can know where to find information. Right? That's what everybody knows. I know how to look it up. Okay? But nobody remembers the second part of that paragraph, which is, when we inquire into a subject, the first thing we have to do is to know what books have treated of it. This leads us to looking catalogs and at the backs of books in libraries. What that's telling me if it's not enough to know, you can look it up. You've got to know how. Okay? If you don't know how, you're kind of stuck. Remember, at the time this was written, access to libraries was not a universal right. Unless you were kind of a white male, 40 and above, you couldn't get into those libraries unless you got special, special access. You had to then also read and understand how to look up stuff in an index. And so the notion of an index, ways of looking up concepts, becomes really important. You remember how to use this? <laughs> a few people do. I will warrant there are people in this audience who have no idea how to use that index. Right? How does this work? Well, you go and look up something in a magic book somewhere that tells you a little index number, 379.65.L. And you go and the right thing, and you start flipping through it, right? That's a technology of access, which gives you an index into this, the classical library, which, interestingly enough, has no people in it. 
Okay? We also had this technology. Now, you remember this one? I know there's a certain set of people who have no idea what this is. This is the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature. It is a manually updated index to content being published in journals and magazines. So you would look up a concept like, for example, high technology industries, and it would give you well, maybe 10 entries for everything that's been published in the past month. I did this on Google, and I got, what, 216 million results <laughs> in 7 tenths of a second. Okay? This is a way of getting access to the index. So one of the things that's coming clear is knowing how to get access, knowing how to look stuff up is part of being literate, knowing how to actually find this stuff up. So I want to introduce an idea. One of the key ideas for this evening is really this notion of informacy. Now, what I mean by that is really a kind of literacy of information. You know how to read. You know how to read, for example, the historical fiction piece. You know how to read an essay. You know how to read a poem. You know how to read a chapter on astrophysics. Okay? But more generally, one of the things we want from people going forward is how to be, in, how to be literate about information as a body of something you can interact with, something you can use. And what I mean by that is illustrated by this little example. What you're seeing here is, um, I'll, I'll run this video in a second. The big pink dot is someone's eye on the page. Okay? What you're going to look at is the eye tracking video of somebody answering the question, what can I do in San Francisco on Saturday night? Okay? Very straightforward kind of question we ask at Google all the time. We brought people into the lab and asked them this question, and we watched to see what they would do. That's the kind of usability test we do all the time. I didn't realize at the time that I was discovering something about what it means to be literate. So let me run this video and watch and listen to what this guy says. Sir? Yeah, I want to try one last thing. Okay. Can okay. thing? Okay. I'll see what happens. I'm activities for kids. Oh, see? They're not giving me a chance, man. <laughs> They're always for kids. No wonder I could have fine. So you should type adult activities. See? That's what I mean. So it's really hard to search for these activities. So this is a really funny video clip. Question. Why is it funny? Well, you know, right? He doesn't seem to know that there are dragons behind certain search queries, right? <laughs> and he doesn't know this is a query that's not safe for work. <laughs> so I actually cut the video here because his next query was adult activities, San Francisco, Saturday night. <laughs> it gets worse, right? My point is, isn't this a kind of literacy? Isn't this a kind of knowing what's out there on the web? If you think about it, when you go to the library, you kind of have a preconceived notion. Oh, I can find learned texts on a favorite topic. Right? This guy has no idea that there are areas of the library, areas of the search internet, that he probably doesn't want to visit. So now one of the interesting things I do in my work is I try to understand what makes people good searchers or not good searchers. And one of the things I discovered a while ago is that there are fundamental skills to reading online text. 
that are different than we read paper texts or Kindles or whatever, right? So one of the fundamental skills that, that people have or should have is this control F, command F, or edit find skill. The ability to find a word on a web page or in a document. Just out of curiosity, how many of you know this, how to use control F? Okay, just so you know about, I would say 60% of you raised your hand. That's really good, actually. For example, here's a piece of, of, of text. It's a very long piece of text that describes a 10K run that I was in. And so I gave this task of finding out how long it took for Beth Assange to run this run to a bunch of people. And I said, okay, go ahead, find it. Okay? Now here's the really interesting thing. What you're seeing here is the amount of time it took people to find the answer to that question. A simple question. It took me roughly three seconds to find the answer. I used control F, I typed in Beth, found it, like that. Okay? So what's happening here is that these people took 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and so on. These are people who actually know that skill. All these people, nah, they don't know that stuff. They do not know how to read online. Okay? So these people are slower by a lot. So out here at two minutes, there are people who still haven't found it. Once you get beyond 120 seconds, 25% of all the answers are wrong. So not only are they slow, but they're buggy. Okay? So you want to know the thing that's really frightening about this? I surveyed over 2,000 English internet users, and I found out that 90.5% do not know this skill. That means they can't find a word on a text, a long text like that. That changes the way you search for information. We know from our studies at Google that introduction of a, a delay of like 100 milliseconds, a tenth of a second, like that, that amount of time between the hand claps, fundamentally changes your search strategy. Imagine you're spending three minutes to find a thing in a document. That's crazy, right? So it's the kind of thing where if you don't know this, you, it really changes the way you work. And what's more, you can't prove that the word's not on the page. Once you know this skill, you can show that this entry does not exist on this page. It's one of the few times in your life you're going to be able to prove the negative. You should take advantage of it. More frightening, I interviewed uh, uh, 500 US English teachers. This is uh, people speaking English in the United States. Uh, half of them don't know this skill. Side effect of that is that when they're preparing your children's texts for the day, they can't find the information on it. They grab the whole page and hope it's in there. Okay? So we also looked um, with, with Mozilla, we looked at uh, over 50,000 Firefox users and 93% of people using Firefox never use this. What's going on? Right. This is a skill of reading online. So when you're doing searches and you land on a page, you want to be able to look for stuff in a fine-grained way, and that's what Control-F does for you. Now, one of the things that comes with being literate is knowing all the different genres of stuff that's out there. So the guy who did the eye-tracking thing, he didn't know about the genre of porn, unbelievably. <laughs> but look at all the different kinds of genres. And I actually have a list that goes on for another three pages like this. 
We have things like home pages or bookmark pages or product pages or online textbooks or 3D object viewers or calls for papers or photo galleries, etc., etc., etc. To be a literate person, you have to understand some of this in order to be able to know that you can find these things and then use them. And once you get to them, do you know how to actually interact with it? It's a little bit like not knowing how to use a scroll. Wait, does anybody know how to use a scroll? Talmud users accepted, right? So let's look at one example, okay? There is this well-known genre on the web called the spoof site. Now, you might have run across a few, maybe by accident. My daughter's fourth grade homework assignment included content about orcas from a spoof site where the teacher didn't know that it was a spoof site. <laughs> so she was telling my fourth grade daughter that orcas live in the Mediterranean and play chess <laughs> and love to go for walks on the beach. I thought that was particularly painful. So more important thing, are there spoof sites that are actually not spoof sites but disinformation sites? Think about that in an information election year. So here's a well-known spoof site <laughs> that a lot of people think is true. Okay? This is the well-known tree octopus site. And the thing about this particular site is it's really well done. It's beautiful. There's a copyright at the bottom. There's a phone number to contact the author. There's uh, literary references. There are papers cited. The whole thing. And it's not until you get to the very bottom you start seeing advertisements for things like Klein bottles. Dispose of your trash forever. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, when you start to realize that there's a lot of culture embedded in knowing these things. Here's another example. Knowing the language. Most of you probably know about emoticons. You may not know that the smiley face, like these figures here, are called emoticons, but it's okay. You, know, you understand. Well, wait. You do understand. You are literate. Right? <laughs> Well, how about these acronyms? Now, I know everybody below the age of 25 knows these acronyms, right? Everybody knows what POS or OOO means, right? Or maybe not. <laughs> Out of office. Parent over shoulder. <laughs> so, so you're making me wonder about our literacy here, okay? So there's also a bunch of concepts that go along with using the interwebs, right? There's things like knowing what an index is. The card catalog is an index, right? Or a key, which is the way you organize that index. Or metadata, which is property about the data that you can filter on. And ranking. So for example, when you do a Google search, we rank order all the results. So you do a search for like cats falling on floor, and we give you the very best video for cats falling on floor, number one. The second best is number two, and so on. There are people who don't know that. They think we give you back 10 million randomly ordered results. That's a problem. It's like looking in the alphabetic index in the back of a book and not understanding that B section follows A or C section follows B. You have to understand we compute that index on the fly for every result. Here's an example of what I mean. So here's a question in a QA site. Is it true that Rosa Parks would have moved to the back of the bus if, but she was listening to her iPod? Um, explanation follows. And the answer comes, yeah, it's true. Okay, emoticon. Asker says, thank you, I'll put that in my report. 
What got missed here? The universal emoticon of sarcasm. Okay? If you don't know how to read that, you're illiterate. See my point? It's not just that you know how to type a colon followed by a capital P. It's that you know in this context that means I'm kind of pulling your leg big time. So you have to understand where these things are coming from. There's also a kind of visual literacy that comes along with all this. And this is all what I'm trying to talk about in the, in the, in the sort of subtext of inf information informacy. So the visual appearance of a document carries a lot of weight. When you look at, say, the, the front page of the New York Times, you recognize the font, you recognize the layout, you recognize the idiom of the newspaper. Right? Now, suppose you did a search for dinosaurs, like this one here. You might end up on a, on a page that looks like this, a Wikipedia page. Now, the thing about it is notice the layout. Notice the typography. Notice the way the, the, uh, the links are referred to on the page. Notice the images on the right-hand side. So I did that search a little while ago, and I ended up on a page like that. Looks pretty good. Uses all the same visual rhetoric style of Wikipedia. In fact, it's using a lot of the same code. Right? Slightly older version of Wikipedia, but it's the same idea, right? People who run on this page tend to think, oh, it's like Wikipedia. I will give as much credit to this as I gave to Wikipedia. So what happens is that the visual appearance of a page ends up influencing your assessment of the credibility of that page. It influences the authoritativeness of a page. If I printed this in the font and the layout of the New York Times, you'd say, yeah, good, love it, right? You might not think that's true. We've measured it, it's true. It's really true. Another kind of idiom you might not have seen, TLDR. Anybody know what that is? A couple of people. The front row is really good. You guys got to move down. Wait, causation doesn't work that way, does it? Um, so TLDR stands for too long, did not read. Right? And it's an interesting concept because what it means is the thing that's after the TLDR is kind of a lot of text. And the way this started sort of historically was it was kind of a satirical comment. Man, this thing is boring. It's too long. Did not read it, right? But it has evolved rather rapidly to mean, and here's the gist of what follows. So now, in Google at least, when you type TLDR, you write a one or two line summary of what follows as a way to preserve time for people to not have to read through all the rest of the text. Why does this matter? Because, A, it's a kind of symbol, a kind of term you need to know if you're going to be a literate reader of email this, or online content in general, because this is used a lot. Second, it indicates that the next thing that follows is an abstract that's truthful to the content that follows. Third thing you need to know, TLDR happens all the time. I did a bunch of interviews with, with folks in the uh, intelligence analysis community, and here's the problem they have. I got to get a report to the president by 5 o'clock. I have a thousand documents to read. Anything over three pages gets pitched. Right? This probably happens to you. Maybe you don't have this report to send to the president, but you've got a lot of documents. And somebody hands you a 200-page report. Excellent scholarship, TLDR. Right? 
So the question is, how do you actually start to handle this information space? And this is part of literacy, part of informacy, is knowing how to handle cases of TLDR. So I want to argue an interesting position, that part of informacy is knowing not only what's out there and what's possible to do, but how to gain access to it. So this is a wonderful photograph taken by my office mate, Simon Tong, and it's of some random place in the United States. I'll tell you that. Suppose your task is to figure out where that is. How would you do it? Well, what I would do is I would actually drop that image into Google's search by image function, and it will tell me that's actually a picture taken on Red Rock Canyon Road just outside of Red Rock Canyon, Las Vegas, Nevada. It found the picture with all the associated data. Okay. Did you know you could do that? Okay. Uh, I know we're not great at marketing. <laughs> but, but one of the things about what's going on here is that capabilities like this, this has been around now for like three months. You can now search picture space. You can use pictures as a query mechanism. So it's not just that there are a lot of information out there. It's that there's also these great compendiums of stuff that you can gain access to with these interesting mechanisms. Being information literate doesn't mean just knowing how to look up something in a card catalog or the periodical guide, but it also means that you understand that one Library of Congress is being added to the internet, to the Google index every day. Tomorrow, there will be another Library of Congress. Okay? And the rate of acquisition is accelerating. Let me give you an example. And that's just in English, right? The rest of the world is, is doing the same kind of thing. So I'm going to give you a true, true heart story. This is a Japanese J-pop singer I really like. I have to admit it. Um, it's OK. You haven't heard of her. Uh, but I think she's great. So I did the obvious search for her name. And I heard, heard her name is Suchi Anayo, like that. Now look what it does. Google comes back and says, did you mean Tsuchi Ayano? Wait. It spell corrected my English to Japanese and converted it back to English. Right? That's a clever bit of spell correction. But I knew it could do it. So I wasn't worried about not knowing how to type the kanji for her name. Because I knew I could get to her content just by typing this kind of close approximation to her name in English. And sure enough, I can get to her official website. Total time, one and a half seconds. Okay? What that allows me to do is to know that I can get the information very, very quickly, even about obscure pop stars in Japan that only 17-year-old girls in Japan listen to, and me. Okay? Same thing is true here. Um, there's another pop singer I like. He's Johnny Clegg. He lives in South Africa. This page is in Afrikaans. I don't read Afrikaans. Luckily, Google will give me the option. Do you want to translate this into English from Afrikaans? I clicked yes, because I wanted to get access to this. Information literacy includes all this kind of stuff. So informacy, I want to argue, is really being literate about information and the kinds of things you can do with it. Look what it's doing. It's shifting tasks that were impossible, because I don't read Japanese, and I don't read Afrikaans. It's changing them from being impossible to being instantaneous. So search tasks that were difficult now are very simple. 
but only if you know how. The reason it's important to know how is because it gives the frame for you. One of the biggest, biggest problems I see in people trying to find information is that they frame the problem too small. They think about the solution is going to be over here in the English corpus published this year, and they've scoped their problem to be this tiny little subset of the internet, and they're wrong. Same thing happens when you don't know that you can actually search in Japanese. Now, let me give you another idea, another key idea here. I call this meta-literacy. What I mean by that, it's being literate about being literate. It's a key idea because literacy, remember, I'm trying to argue, is the ability to read, write, and function critically in a domain. So what does meta-literacy mean other than being a fancy term? So it's being literate about being literate. Okay, Dan, what does that mean? It, know, it means knowing how the mechanism, the technology of the stuff you're reading works, and knowing that that's going to change and you have to become newly literate again. It's knowing how to learn your way forward as technology and times change. So let me give you a quick example here. So one of the things we do at Google is we provide a maps interface, right? We actually have cars that have driven the, every road in the United States, and we have the GPS data for every point on, on the planet, basically. So we get this great and simple UI. You type in a location, and it goes to that spot. This happens to be uh, Google right here, right there. It's down here somewhere. <laughs> and I typed in the query, look up very top, you see pizza. So I wanted to find all the pizza places close to work. This is 2005. Now, one of the things we do is we're constantly changing the user interface. It's as though we're changing the shape and way the printed book worked. We're changing the index and the way the index works all the time. This is a year later. So 2005, 2006, notice the change. We moved all that stuff over to the left-hand side. The great thing about moving it over here is first, you didn't notice it. Nobody noticed. Nobody cared. It was fine. It continued working. But we changed a lot of things. We added icons a year later. A year after that, we keep adding information. We add new widgets. We have all kinds of stuff that's changing, and you never notice it. It just works. That's great. So why do I need to be informant? Why do I need to be meta-literate? Because we also add stuff that you never notice. So for example, if we look at the course over a few years here, we change a lot of the user interface. We add new capabilities, like getting a hybrid view. Uh, I don't know what's under more, but you can actually now see traffic layer on top of this. You can see weather on top of this. You can go to 3D views of the Earth. There's an enormous world of content in here. If you don't know what's possible to ask that question, you won't ask that question. That's the framing effect. And these little effects become really, really important. Because one of the things we've noticed is that we introduce new capabilities. And unless we shout at you and shake your neck and say, pay attention to me, you won't notice that little thing there. OK, I admit it. We kind of screwed up. Nobody should make an interaction widget that's four pixels by four pixels. <laughs> okay, Nobody saw that. Nobody clicked on it, so we changed it. We also put one down. <laughs> Sorry, people over here. There's a little interaction widget right down there. Okay, Nobody saw that either. Bad idea. So we use this information to make the interface better on the next cycle. And this is a key idea for meta-literacy. Nothing stays the same. 
This kind of stuff changes all the time. What this means for you and for me as a literate reader is that it's important for us to know what's possible to ask about the world. So one of the things I do is I go out and I talk to people and I ask them how they deal with information, how they search. And typically what they tell me is, you know, I type stuff into Google and it kind of works. Well, let me tell you. It's a lot better if you know how. Here's an example. Uh, Google, Google Goggles is a technology piece of software that runs on my phone, right? Uh, excuse me. This supercomputer with multiple cameras and a multi-touch display that I can interact with, with accelerometers, and God knows what other sensors are in there, right? But one of the things I can do with this is I can walk to Stanford campus and take a picture of Hoover Tower like that and say, query this image. Remember search by image? Now I'm querying reality. I take that picture and here in the image you see, it's actually gone to the web page for Hoover Tower. The nature of your ability to question the world, the ability to ask queries, changes. We introduced this about three years ago and it's a way cool kind of thing. You probably have GPS in your pocket, right? So you all can talk to your computer. I love it when you can go to the car and say, take me home. And it just GPSs my way back home. You don't know that's possible, you're missing a great bet, right? So we all know that we can do this kind of thing. And, well, let me tell you a story. So uh, I was playing in this Irish session at a camp in Mendocino. And they got to it, but basically what happens in these music sessions is they go from tune to tune to tune to tune. It's kind of nonstop marathon Irish music. And they hit one I didn't know, so I had to drop out. And the big thing that happens if you've ever played in these kind of sessions is you have to learn the tune. But I didn't know the tune. I couldn't ask anybody. So here's what I did. I'm a technologist. I know how to ask these questions. And so I launched an application. I stood up with my phone and I recorded the music. This is the video from me standing up with my phone. I brought it home. I dropped it into this application, TunePal. And so I uploaded the audio to this app. It sent it off to the server in the sky, in the cloud. And it's thinking about it. It's thinking really hard. And the reason this is interesting is because I don't know any other way to get this information. And it comes back a few seconds later and listen. It's playing it back to me with the title in the same key. This is a remarkable bit of music recognition from live music reco. And the reason this is particularly interesting is it's a, a kind of way of thinking about asking questions that you might not have thought about. I'll give you another example. So my son dearly loves Stanford basketball. And at Stanford basketball, maybe at Princeton basketball, I don't know, they, they always do this. You can all sing along if you want. Right? Same problem. 
How do you recognize a song like that? There is no app for recognizing basketball chants. Right? Maybe someday. You get the idea. So both of those have the problem that they're live music with random people, random musicians playing possibly incorrect keys and so on, right? You would normally think that something like Shazam could do that, but Shazam recognizes copyrighted digitally recorded music by comparing exact matches. So it won't work. So my son asked about that song and said, Dad, I want that for my iPod. I love Stanford basketball. I want to sing along. And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I said, you know, there's no app for that. I don't know how to query it in Google. Out of luck. My son, being 14-year-old, completely ignored me and typed in the lyrics. <laughs> I hate my son. Um, but he was right. He was absolutely right. Um, the very first hit is O, 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 O song. And when you click through, it takes you to, guess what, the MP3 for that song. He downloads it. He now has it on his iPod, which means you should never listen to your old man, especially when he works at Google. So the reason that's an interesting story from my perspective is that there's a big thing that happened I didn't understand, which is, remember what I said about the Library of Congress adding every day? This happens every day. And now there are big question answering sites where people ask questions like that. What's that song that goes ba doo ba doo ba doo? Right? And in this case, there are, uh, I don't know, a thousand people who have written, what's that song that goes oh, 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 oh? And they all give links to the appropriate MP3 files. So the content itself changes. So the model that we had of old literacy where there was a canon, when there was received wisdom that was placed into the Princeton Library, and it was true, and it was wonderful, or, except for those Marx people. But you know, the idea that there were vetted content is just wrong. It no longer is true. People are constantly adding new stuff, often answers to your questions. So in, in trying to understand what literacy is, I, I ask a lot of people a lot of questions. And this is a great part of my job. So I gave this problem to a bunch of Googlers who you think would be able to actually solve really great problems. And these are very talented Googlers. And I asked them this question. This is a well-known house in downtown Palo Alto, 900 University Avenue. Can you find an aerial image taken of that house before 1977? I asked 250 people at Google. Zero people were able to solve this. Why? They're very smart people. Okay? The reason is that they framed the problem incorrectly. They didn't realize that there was actually another way to solve that problem than using Google Web Search. And they should have known this because it's another Google product. Okay? It turns out that Google Earth has a slider. That's what you're seeing up there. Remember, see it? it says September 1948. You drag the icon back to 1948, and that's this picture from 1948. The framing effect is powerful. If you don't know the other capabilities that are potent, that are out there, an option for you to use, you will not frame your question in a way that can be answered. So meta-literacy is not just about 
having a fancy word to describe learning, but it's really the skill of knowing how to be literate about learning your own information literacy. Now, part of this is really being also metacognitive. I know, three new words tonight. You know, you can handle it. My point about metacognition is it's kind of the awareness of how your own thinking works. Right? For example, you know how you read. And the more I can tell you about the way you learn when you read, the more informed you are about metacognition, your own metacognition. So it's things like how do you read, how do you learn to perceive, how do you learn to exert executive control, that is to sequence and take steps one step at a time and make sure you don't like get stuck on step two. Right? And importantly, it's how do you learn. So I've also done another study of a bunch of people I called ultra-searchers. And what an ultra-searcher is is somebody who does more than 100 searches a day. Ultra-searchers are really good searchers. They're fantastic. They do a lot of practice. And one of the things they do is they're constantly trying to learn new ways to search. It's their business. These are people like medical reference librarians, concierge, travel agents, people who live in information space, and they're constantly spending 10, 20% of their time learning how to search, learning what new kinds of stuff are, are available. They are meta-literate. Now, one of the things that is interesting to know is that the higher your educational level, the more you are facile with search. So this is you know, between uh, people who have less than high school, we give them a standardized test, we discover that you get about 23% of those problems right. Uh, if you get a bachelor's degree, you go up to 33%. So it's good to know your bachelor's degree is worth something. In this case, it's 10 points. Okay? But what's interesting about these people is the farther you go up the educational scale, the more you know how to learn. Therefore, one of the things we, we this is a complicated graph, down and to the right is better, better performance, better on time, higher accuracy rate. Every time we gave people another task to do and we told them a little bit about how to do it, they improved markedly. They always got better as long as they knew how to learn. So what this tells us is if you know a little bit about your metacognition, you can be a better searcher. I'll give you a couple of examples. Anchoring effects are when you have an undue influence of a particular kind of value, like a number or something you see that influences your evaluation of the content. Or a confirmation bias is when you keep looking for confirmation that your previous data was correct. None of you do this, I know. <laughs> but the truth is, most people do. They find the answer to a solution to a problem, and they keep searching for more and more confirmation of that. We all want to be right. What you should be doing is looking for disconfirmation, trying to prove your hypothesis incorrect. And finally, there's, there's this fluency effect. Perceptual fluency is when you have the presentation style looking really good. It's a very professional, very high polish presentation style, and it influences your judgment about quality. Would you rather buy a jar of mustard with a chronic crummy handwritten label or one with a beautifully polished, highly rendered graphical label? You want to buy the second one, right? Same thing is true when you're looking at con content online. So an important aspect of these, these uh, ultra-searchers is that they know their social metacognition really well. What I mean by that is they know 
a circle of people. They have contactless intelligence, which is their extended circle of friends who actually know something about a content area they don't know anything about. Example, a medical reference librarian may know nothing about mesothelioma, but she knows somebody who does. And she will call that person and say, can you help me formulate my query? That's what I mean by the social searching, the social literacy is being able to offload your work onto somebody who actually knows something in more detail about that. Interesting thing, every ultra searcher I've interviewed knows this. They all practice it. They don't call it meta-social cognition, social metacognition, but they have it in their repertoire anyway. Here's a nice example. I was looking for this particular sculpture in uh, downtown Tokyo. I, a professional searcher, spent two hours looking for the sculptor of this thing. Gave up. Thought, what am I going to do? Walked downstairs, asked the concierge. She said, oh yeah, it's this guy. I missed it, right? I was not thinking about who else would have faster access to this information. Okay? So part of being a literate person is not just that you can do it, but now in a world where we have such diversity of content, such diversity of information resources, that you know someone else who can help you out. So what do you need to be literate? What, do you need to, what does it mean to be literate about the information world? So I'm beginning to think, you know, I'm starting to get the answer to my quest I posed at the very beginning. What does it mean to be literate? I'll give you an example. What does it mean when you memorize something? Or if you believe you can look everything up, why would you ever memorize anything? Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Most of you probably recognize that, right? The only reason you recognize it is at some point you heard it enough to have it stored in a part of your memory where you can get instant access and say, that's Shakespeare, right? So there are still times when the time course of events, when you need to get information to your brain quickly, the best way is to memorize it. There's some things you don't want to look up. You wouldn't even know to look that up if you'd never heard that before. So here's the problem. We live in a time of unparalleled genre speciation. That is, we're getting more more kinds of content, more and more different kinds of resources available all the time. With that comes expanding opportunities. We can now start to look at beautiful visualizations and dig deeper into the content. But here's the downside of that. People are inventing genres every day. There are web pages, news streams, groups, maps, magazines online, RSS feeds, books, et cetera, et cetera. No, how do you actually understand what to do? Here's a nice case in point. This is me looking for the 3D warehouse, which is a Google repository, three-dimensional CAD models, of buildings in the world. Now, what I'm doing is I'm searching for Notre Dame because I wanted to understand what Notre Dame was like before I went to Paris. So I'm going to download the model to my laptop, and I'm going to fly through the building. Okay? And this is actually all real time. So this is how long it took. This is now downloaded on my desktop as a SketchUp model, and I can now move through the building. I can fly all around it. If I wanted to, I could place this on a map of Paris in exactly the point where Notre Dame stands. 
If you're a student and trying to understand what a flying buttress is, don't read the dictionary definition. Fly up to one. Take a look. But if you don't know it's possible, you won't frame the question in a way that allows you to do that. Here's a great question about literacy. Is this real or Photoshop? Real. People, raise your hands. Are you ichthyologists? Okay. <laughs> Photoshop people, raise your hand. Okay. It's real. Okay. The reason I bring this up is it looks like Photoshop, right? I can show you other images where it will look real and you would all say real and it would be Photoshop, right? Or CAD or, or CGI, some kind. Okay. Interesting question here is now with these new genres, a very high res imagery that can be simulated, synthesized, made up, how do we discriminate between the fake and the real? Right? That's what credibility assessment is really all about. And I can't help but share this quote from Hemingway with you, which is, every man should have a built-in crap detector. It's easy for him to say. <laughs> the question for us is, how do you learn that? How do you learn to actually take in the additional cues? Because there's so much good stuff out there. Nice map. Remember the, the power outage a few years ago? The Northeast went black. Remember that? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> well, it was a big one, right? It took out most of New York here, right? Parts of New Jersey and everything. Um, it's a fake photo. How do you know that? There's no cloud cover. And you can argue, yeah, this was composite. No, it wasn't. This represents an instant in time. You cannot get a cloud-free image like this without doing some very interesting monkeying around. So this is the kind of literacy we start to have to ask ourselves. How do we understand, given this plethora of genres and uh, efflorescence of new kinds of content that are coming online all the time? Informant scholars, people who actually know how to be effective searchers, effective readers, effective understanders of information, are faster and more accurate. Here's a, a great question I posted on my blog the other day. Where was Margarita Zella arrested? Anybody know? Yeah, nobody knows. It's okay. Her other name is Matahari. Okay. So I asked um, a whole pile of people how long, you know, where she was arrested. This curve should look really familiar, right? We have that sort of people who get it and the poor guys who don't. Okay. So, and again, once you get past this sort of median point, 25% are wrong. So time matters here because these guys are following strategies that are not particularly good. The way to solve this problem, interestingly enough, is to actually go and look at the original Paris police report. And you find out exactly what hotel she was arrested at. Now, you remember this, the dinosaur Wikipedia example, and this dinosaur example from Conservapedia? Remember what I said about appearance influencing judgment? Influencing credibility assessment. This looks a lot like that. So if you believe that, you're probably going to believe this if you run across it. So let's actually look at these two texts. Now, one thing that's really interesting about Wikipedia or Conservapedia is they have what are called talk pages. Right? A talk page is where the people who write these pages get together to discuss items of common interest. Whether or not we should include this, we should throw that out, whether or not this is a correct interpretation. 
So here, look at the language, and I kind of underlined a few things. It says here, it makes more sense if you look at a cladogram. In normal parlance, birds have evolved from dinosaurs 65 million years ago. It kind of goes like that. Right? Now look at the language around uh, conservapedia. Dinosaurs were created on day six. Uh, it was a sequence of events on day six. They were created as fish, birds, and animals, not as eggs, but as fully formed animals. So whether or not you believe the creation story advocated by conservapedia or the other one, looking at this page tells you where these people stand, where they're coming from. If you don't look at the backstory, you don't look at that edit history, you have no clue. This is part of what it means to be meta-literate, is that you can start to look more deeply behind each of these pieces of content. Now, one of the things that's going on here is that with great new kinds of information content come great new abilities. For example, uh, one of the things to think about is when it rains in Seattle, is it really different than when it rains in Palo Alto? I don't know. I was curious. So I did the obvious thing. If you're informant, you can go search for the data and actually do the visualization and compare. And that's what I did here. The red line here is rain in Palo Alto, and you see what happens. Rain, stop, rain, stop, rain, stop, rain, stop, rain. It does like 15-minute bursts. And in Seattle, once it starts raining, the blue, it starts raining, and you're stuck in a very damp environment for about eight hours. Five minutes. Okay? You can do tricks like this with tools that are out there. Like Google has this thing called fusion tables. You can download data that you find and start to visualize it, as was done by The Guardian with the WikiLeaks data set. They actually have a map available at that URL. You can actually look into each of the incidents in that data that was on the web and get a deeper understanding about what was going on in, in Afghanistan at that time. So here's, here's kind of the punchline. Information on the web, information as we know it, is constantly changing. The interfaces are changing. Our ability to use them is constantly changing. So we need to stay up to date. We need to be informant. The quantity of stuff that's out there is just staggering. 120 million books in Google Books. I don't even know how many billions of images there are in Google Images, but I will tell you there are 78,000 anteater images and 700,000 lolcat images. Google News aggregates 65,000 different news sources, and it's all searchable. I can ask, what's the population of Japan? It will tell me as of 2008, it was 127 million. How tall is the Empire State Building? It will tell me that. 20,000 leagues in miles? Wait, wait, 20, you read the book, right? I thought 20,000 leagues was how deep the submarine went. I asked a group of about this many English teachers. 80% of them said it was the depth of the submarine. For your consideration, what's the diameter of the Earth? It's a lot less than that. Okay? Uh, you can ask a question like that, and Google will tell you. <laughs> exactly. So the point is, right, this kind of set of possibilities is growing constantly. And what we have to do as literate consumers of this is to figure out how to stay on top of that. We have to develop our capabilities and our understanding to be informant, to understand the space of information possible and how to search effectively. We also, I think, want to become meta-literate. That is, 
able to see what's changing in that landscape. It's not static anymore. Maybe it was 100 years ago, but it's not now. So, argument. You need to understand this stuff. You need to be informant. You need to understand how the information is out there, how it's organized, and what's possible. So I want to make this point that it's not just enough to have the three R's. We need a fourth R. We need to be teaching our students, our children, ourselves, the fourth R of research. We need to become meta-literate people. So clearly, spelling is not one of the three R's. <laughs> but research should be. It allows us to break out of our shell of the information world frame that we live in and start to understand what's possible. So how do we do that? Well, by coming here, you've taken the first step. Congratulations. No, seriously. It's the kind of thing you actually have to pay attention to. You have to put some cognitive effort into. You have to become aware of changes in your info ecosystem. Easy way to do that is subscribe to uh, newsletters or blogs that discuss that. Oh, or play a serious game. At the very beginning, Brian mentioned uh, the game that I, I work on uh, called the Google a Day. And this is the kind of question that we ask every day. Uh, what beast is fought by the man? And you have to solve it by using a search engine. And we will then tell you the answer and show you how to do it. It's an easy way to stay on top of things and learn new capabilities. Or you can look at blogs. And, and again, this is one from mine. But what I do every Wednesday is I pose a question like this, wait 24 hours, and then show you how to solve it. So does anybody recognize this cityscape? OK, you're disqualified for the moment. <laughs> the question is, uh, what's the phone number of the office that this was taken from? Is that sounding crazy or what? I had 200 people write to me with the right answer. Okay. It's actually not that hard. Go look at my blog, actually look up the, rec the, the, the solution to this. But it's interesting what you can do. This is what we can do. We can be informant people. We just put a little bit of effort into it. A little bit of energy, a little bit of understanding. I want to close with one last story. I teach a lot of classes. And I went to Foster City, a little uh, city north of where I live. It has a very diverse population. 30 kids in the class. This is fourth graders. 30 kids in the fourth grade class. 30 different languages spoken at home. Thai, Spanish, Lithuanian, you, know, you name it, it was there. So I thought, I'll teach them how to use Google Translate. I did. And two weeks later, being fourth graders, they all wrote me thank you notes. It's great. Right? I opened it up. And there was a really sweet note from a little kid named Armando. And he told me this story, which was, his parents don't want him to speak Spanish at home. It's de classe. It's not good for you to go up in the world. And so he used Google Translate to write a letter like this to his grandmother and translate it in Spanish. He then wrote that on his postcard to grandma and sent it off. This kid is informant for the moment. We, as a culture, need to take on this as a kind of never-ending task. It's a whole new world every day. Be informant. Be informed. Thank you.
Thank you. Let me uh, give you a little oh, present. Oh, thank you. And offer you the, the audience the opportunity to be further informant right. by asking questions. So uh, the uh, people have questions. In the back, in the blue. Uh, we have a microphone. Just wait for the mic to come to you. When you had that quote from Hemingway, uh, it set off my bull detector. I think you attributed a quote to him or from him after his death. I can give you the whole reference if you want to see it. It was in an article in Atlantic written by an author truly after he was dead, but it didn't matter. He had actually interviewed him before he died. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All this stuff needs more context, right? This is just intended to really get you going, get you kind of thinking about it. Suggestion. You could ask what it is to be erudite in the area of Google, in the era of Google. To, um, you know, I, I, no, I don't agree. I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I think for a lot of jobs, if you want to be awesome at your job, you want to be able to do these kinds of pieces of work. You need to run, know how to run a computer to work at McDonald's, right? Increasingly, as, uh, as our information base becomes part of everything we do, I, I would argue we all need to be able to uh, do these kinds of informant operations. So, Thank you. Here. Red. Hi. Speaking about the find command you mentioned earlier, um, there used to be an option to do the cache search results. Yes. Why was that originally there and why is it not there anymore? Okay, so, uh, Can you hear me? Is the, it, we're back? I can't tell if I'm. Oh, there we go. Um, so the question was about what happened to the cache link. Cache link, for people who don't know about it, would give the previous version of the page. So whenever we last crawled it, you could look it up, like yesterday's version or something. Um, we moved it under the preview. So when you preview the, the little double chevron on the right-hand side, you click on that, it will give you the preview of the page, and click on the cache link, which is up there on the right. That's a good question. I don't know. Try it out. OK. Um, if you're using a Chrome browser or Firefox, there's an extension you can get that will highlight everything for you. So yeah. But the, the reason we took it out is that in the United States, that, that link gets used so rarely, it just wasn't worth it. So for people like you who are really interested, now you know. Okay? Um, interestingly enough, that, that cache link is used a lot in Africa, primarily because the latencies there are so bad. It's faster to get the cache link from Google than to get it from the original provider. Another question. In the middle there, white. So as uh, user interfaces get better, does this become less important? Like in Siri on the iPhone, you're supposed to be able to talk in just natural language, and it'll just figure it out on its own? Um, no. Um, you have to know the right question to ask. No, I'm serious about that. Um, Siri, what's the answer to life? <laughs> it's not a useful question, right? Um, so you still have to know what's, I mean, my framing comment is really still true. Um, 250 Googlers couldn't solve that Earth problem because they didn't know that that was possible at all. We can build increasingly competent search mechanisms that do Siri-like things. You can ask more and more sophisticated questions. But you still have to ask the right questions. 
So I don't think we're going to solve that. True, the UIs will get better and better. We will be able to handle more and more complex questions, but it doesn't resolve you of any requirement to think. No, she's going to be there in a second. We'll wait. It's for the record. <laughs> you said that you're continually adding. I noticed, um, and I may be mistaken, but terrain is missing from maps now. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about um, that. The, the last time, it, yeah, terrain is a funny case because uh, for people who don't know, terrain is like a topo map you can get. Try zooming out a little bit. Terrain disappears if you zoom in too tight where we don't have data for the terrain map. So zoom out a couple of notches and check the terrain model. It will probably be there. Uh, you spent a lot of time talking about uh, all of the cool new stuff that Google has been adding to its search capabilities. Uh, it seems like there's a version of the long tail effect in the sense that there are lots and lots of ways of accessing information that you could add, that you could work on. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I just basically wanted to ask, um, how do you, as Google, or how does a researcher, how does another company mm. uh, decide you know, what are the new ways of accessing information that you should be working on, um, other than, you know, wouldn't it be cool if? Right, right. It, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, uh, I'm not gonna answer it in the specific, because <laughs> it, it would be basically telling our strategy, but I'll tell you generally, um, generally what we're doing is new features are added kind of on a basis, a couple of different factors in the basis, one of which is, um, is it something we can actually do? There's a lot of things we'd like to do, we just can't do for various reasons, technical, political, or intellectual. Um, another one, how many people will it help? And so we have a reasonably good estimate of that. And so what we do is when we consider a new feature, we'll actually try to do a projection model and see it will help you know, 20 million people you know, every day kind of thing. If we get up numbers like that, we'll, we'll launch it. Um, it's also a consideration about how much will it cost? Now, if you've been in some of these discussions at Google, they sound crazy. So for example, when we launched um, the mapping project, someone said, well, we could just drive a car on every road in the world <laughs> and write down the GPS coordinates of every motion the wheel makes. And Larry said, yeah, we could do that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, let's do it. So we did it. Or, or, or like, you know, let's get an image of the entire planet. We can do that too. So, it, we have a lot of capability for that, but it's really in the end analysis, how much will it actually either be useful for individuals trying to get tasks done that we understand, but we also will consider things that are generally beneficial to humanity. So for example, the, the Google flu trends analysis that we do, where we look at the queries and try to determine when flu is trending in different places. We don't make any money on that. We never will, but it's generally good for humanity. So we build things like that that we think are gonna be of general public good. It seems to me the next logical step might be for Google to produce products that teach people to do exactly what you are exhorting us to do. Do they exist? Are they in the pipeline? Uh, I have a team that was working on the education problems for search. 
So uh, if you do a search for my name, you'll find my homepage, and on there are tons of links to all, a lot of the, the education stuff. So if, if people in the audience are teachers or librarians or people who teach other students how to be informant, go to my webpage. You should be able to find it. Daniel Russell, two S's, two L's, no threes. You can Google it, yeah. You can, you can Bing it for all I care. Um, uh, but you'll be able to find it. And there's a ton of stuff there. Uh, we're increasingly adding things to YouTube channel to show you. For example, I just released a, a 20 minute long, uh, no, 40 minute long, 40 minute long uh, video about how to use Scholar. Uh, and in the first week, it got 70,000 views, which is a ton for a Scholar product. Um, so we, we're, we're doing active outreach like that. So search my page, you'll get it. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you think eventually that this will drive us to a point where uh, we all share a common language, or do you think that there will be folks that are always reinventing ways to communicate in smaller groups? I'm thinking of my children and parent over shoulder. Um, will there always be that urge to create new languages going forward? There's, there's a bunch of really interesting ideas in there all at once. Um, uh, will it create a common language? I, I kind of doubt it. Uh, a lot of different languages worldwide. Um, and I don't see that any, anybody's not producing content in their language of choice. There are a few exceptional cases. So for example, the corpus of Arabic is rather small, just because it's easier to do English for some reason. Um, and so it's a little bit funny with things like that. But, uh, we're, we're supporting, we're dedicated to supporting lots of languages. So I, I don't know if you've, you saw Japanese and all that stuff up there. Uh, so I don't think that will happen. Um, but I think there are interesting competing forces at work about who's creating new intellectual content, who's creating new you know, well, academic articles, but also who's creating interesting kinds of funny cat videos. <laughs> so, so every day people upload a decade's worth of video to Google YouTube. 10 years of video every day. So we have to do something with that. So I, I don't think the creativity of people is going to be inhibited at all by this. If anything, it'll be the opposite. In the back. What does your research show about how long people will stick to a particular search? Is it getting longer, shorter? <laughs> Excellent question. Um, you know, the, the, the answer I'm going to give to almost all these kinds of questions is it depends, right? Um, on average, people, when they're doing an average search task, and I'm looking over millions of search tasks, they'll do two queries and spend about three to four minutes, right? Not very long. On the other hand, if you're looking for something deeply important to you, I've seen people search for days, literally days. They'll, they'll, they'll do 12 hours worth of search, they'll go to bed, they'll do 12 hours more, just insane amounts of search. The longest search session I ever saw was around 1,000 queries. That's a lot of queries. <laughs> Having said that, that's way out in the long tail. That's like in the next state. But nevertheless, there are people who will do, spend a lot amount of time. So the distribution for all these kinds of things is most people do very short, shallow searches, not very much information. 
So that led me to one of my early observations about when I was teaching credibility classes is when you want to check something, please do one more query because one more query will get you all the way up to four, which is a 25% improvement, <laughs> which is massive. So I, I try to get people to do longer, uh, one or two more queries that try to verify the information they're finding. But in general, people do rather short ones, unless it's something they really care about. Medical, health information, financial information, porn, you know, that kind of stuff. So what do you think of IBM's Watson? Is uh, Google going to do some kind of semantically meaningful search? Um, I think Watson is actually a pretty amazing technology demonstration. Uh, it's, uh, I, I guess as, as Brian said, I, I worked at IBM, so I, I know a little bit about what's going on there. Um, it's, I, I think what they're trying to do with, it, with Watson is take it towards an interesting direction of domain-specific, deep, question answering, like medical, right? Uh, I, I hope it works. It'd be really great. Um, are we going to do something like that? Probably not, but you know, I'm neither going to confirm nor deny anything like that. But we're generally interested in trying to really improve the quality of all the searches that people do. And the domain that, that Watson, the domain approach that Watson takes is to be very, very deep about a very narrow topic which is sort of the classic AI expert systems approach. Fine. Um, their, their, with their technology has allowed them to broaden that domain of expertise, which is fantastic, but it's not the same as doing web-wide, Google-wide kinds of searches that we do. So I, I don't see it as competition for us. It's a different kind of application. Uh, so far, you haven't talked about the development of the Google algorithm and the quality of results uh, as perceived by different people uh, delivered by, uh, by Google. And uh, for example, uh, various groups have objected sometimes that uh, anti-Semitic or, or racist uh, searches are, are given priority because of the way people ask them. So I know there's a, there's a, there are real civil liberties questions there, but I, I think there's a, the question that I wonder about is whether Google uh, believes that it has some kind of obligation to deliver search results outside of Google Scholar in something like the order in which uh, the best informed human experts would put them, or is it really a more populist approach that that it should really reflect what people are, are looking for, even if uh, the people that most people would consider authorities are not always happy with the results. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question because it, you, you suppose an interesting hypothesis, which is that we can identify who the authorities are on a particular topic. Okay? Give you an example, acupuncture. If you look for it, with respect to medical authorities in the United States, the AMA is going to say, eh, it's not so great, right? I mean, it's kind of people sticking needles in it, right? Go to China, the authorities there will say, completely valid, tested, fantastically reprodu reproducible medical treatment, right? So there are topics like that, that about which people and governments and authorities can have vastly different opinions, right? So it's very hard for us to resolve that. So we basically punted on that identifying truth model, you can't do it. So what we've done is try to give 
a, an algorithm which tries to provide the most salient results with respect to what other people have voted for. That's kind of what PageRank does. So in essence, it is a populist perspective, right? One of the key things about that, though, is it's populist with respect to where you are. So if I type in acupuncture in kanji in Japan, I'm going to get different results than if I type it in English in the United States and different if I type it in English in Australia. Right? So that's what, remember what I said earlier about so, socially coordinated results, social knowledge shared within a, a culture group? That's a part of it. Right? So treatments that are considered standard in Australia are not standard here and vice versa. So that's why we kind of geo-reference all of the results. Are we ignoring that side? Uh, wait, 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 she's got the microphone. The we'll come back to you. Uh, what's your take on the... Go ahead, go, no, now try. Uh, what's your take on Just keep talking, just keep talking. Just speak loudly. Yeah. For example, if I'm interested to find what is the best technology for Japanese, yep. go to Quark and uh, start yep. a discussion there rather than do the Google search. There's two aspects, um, one of which is uh, there's human curated content like Quora or a lot of the question answering sites. Those are people who pose questions and then a lot of people comment on them giving answers. And then there's curate, you know, uh, social results. So you may have clicked on something and said, I really like this result. So social results versus curated results. So uh, I think they both are valuable. So the QA sites are what allowed the OOOO thing to work, right? But social results where I rely on my peer group to identify the best piano that I want to buy or the best irrigation system for my house, that's a different kind of result because it depends on me and knowing that my friend Bob actually knows what an irrigation system is. I don't. He likes that. I'm going to go with that. So it's two different kinds of effects. I think they're both valuable in their place. Now we can go over here. Are there some semantic tricks to help guide the context of the search? To, to use yeah. some of your examples, you showed the pizza search example, right. classic case. I'm on my phone, I search pizza, I want to know what's, where's the closest, closest parlor. I'm at home, maybe I want to know how to make dough, maybe right. I want to know the history. Right. So I have a whole class on that, <laughs> but I'll give you a couple of examples real quick. Um, there's, there are terms you can add in to your search that we call context terms. So for example, if you are wondering what those cluster gears in the back of your racing bicycle are called, what I would do is go to Google Images and type in bicycle diagram. Okay, you, what you'll find is a whole page of results of exploded parts diagrams showing what everything is labeled. So that's a great trick to know. Uh, so that's one kind of thing you could do. Um, another trick that uh, uh, I figured out a grad student said, I need pictures of men and women, black clothing on a white background. Mm, how do you do that, right? So what I, what I discovered, though, is you can actually go to a, uh, do a search for a black and white picture of a man or woman, 
and then click related images, which is one of the click one of the blue links underneath the image. And it will give you a whole page of results like that. So there's tricks like that, and I can keep going on and on, but I'll give you one more. Um, it's often useful, for example, when you're trying to, uh, to learn about a topic area very quickly, like you need to buy a, a new refrigerator for your house. How do you learn it? I don't know anything about refrigerators. How do I choose one very quickly? I would search for a refrigerator, tutorial, refrigerator uh, purchase. I would add in a term that might give me background information. Describe the kind of result you want, and that often will help out. Um, let's uh, we, uh, thank the speakers. Great questions. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Good. Thank you.